This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 258, and we are recording on November 17th. I'm Jen Northington, and I'm here with Amanda Nelson, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Hello. Good morning. <laughs> Welcome. I am so sleepy today. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. I have nothing to add to that. I am also very sleepy. Yeah. It's going to be a multi-caffeine day, I feel. I feel. My dog has been getting up every morning at 4.30, which is like <gasps> a super fun journey. I hate no. it. I hate it so much. Uh, sometimes I can get him to go back to sleep, but sometimes he's like, no, let's play with this ball now, right now <laughs> for an hour. Thank you. I cannot wait for this to be over. <laughs> <laughs> I feel very much about this puppy the way that I do about my human children, which is like, I did that once. I don't have to do that again. Like, I, I don't need to have an infant mammal in my house. Right. Ever again. <laughs> May Petunia sleep longer soon. Thank you. I receive your benediction. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the show, y'all. If this is your first episode, surprise, we are going to talk about books. Uh, this is, as I said at the top, a show for personalized reading recommendations. And you can send in your request either via email, getbooked at bookriot.com, or you can drop it in the form that is at the bottom of the show notes on our site for each episode. And we will do our best to find you your next great read. It can be a request for yourself or a friend or a relative. It can be for gift giving or travel or whatever. Uh, just send it on in and we will see if we get to it. Speaking of, if you have sent in holiday recommendation questions, we swear we're getting to those soon. Mm. And if we're not going to get to it on air, you will likely get an email from us. So keep an eye out for those. All right. So let's see. We have some feedback from listeners. Carol wrote in with a recommendation for Quinn from the episode who was looking for superpower books and recommends The Brilliance Saga. The first book is just called Brilliance by Marcus Seiki. It's a world mostly like our own, except a small segment of the population, including the protagonist, have been born with supernatural gifts that range from mundane to potentially dangerous. It's a political action thriller. Interesting. And Kelly wrote in for Megan, who is asking for, quote unquote, impartial books on American politics and recommends The Red and the Blue, the 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism by Steve Kornacki. And I'm going to just read what Kelly wrote because it's kind of cracking me up. So apparently, uh, Kornacki is an MSNBC political correspondent, uh, takes Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich and examines how their political careers capitalized on the political environment then and how that's still playing out now. In terms of bias, Kornacki is a math nerd, polls and sports, Nate Silver's adjacent. <laughs> a colleague referenced a beautiful mind in describing his focus during the election coverage. Bonus, check Twitter for hashtag Kornacki thirst on Leslie Jones's <laughs> Twitter feed. I, I will do that. I Thanks will. so I will. much. <laughs> will do. Immediately after this recording. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you, Kelly, for writing in with those recommendations. All right, so I'm going to read our first question. We'll take a sponsor break, and then we will get with the recommending. So our first question today is from Pippa, who says, I really enjoy novels with interesting structures or narrative devices. I recently read and loved the YA novel Toffee by Sarah Crossan, which is in verse. And We Need to Talk About Kevin by Lionel Shriver, which unfolds slowly via letters from the protagonist. Other examples I've read and appreciated are Stream of Consciousness novels. Ducks Newport and Mrs. Dalloway, and Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell, which is made up of books within books. Recommendations for other novels with interesting slash ambitious structures or devices gratefully received. All right, so let us take a sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. 
So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Wife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the Critics Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Amanda, what innovative narrative structure Mm -hmm. novel do you recommend? I picked Milkman by Anna Burns, surprising no one. Although maybe surprising some people because I apparently have not recommended it at all in 2020, which surprised me a little bit. I went back and checked just to make sure. So this is a book about the troubles in Ireland, and it takes place in... Ireland, obviously, as I said. Actually, it's an an unnamed city. So like, you're not supposed to know that it's Ireland, but it obviously is. And it's like the 70s. The main character is a, uh, she's out of high school. I don't think her age is named, but she's like out of high school, kind of college age. Um, She lives at home with her mother and two of her sisters. Some of her siblings have moved out and are married. One of her siblings is a political dissident and is either dead or in hiding or something to that effect. Anyway, the city that she lives in, which is, again, unnamed, is uh, full of political turmoil. And her entire like goal of existence is to be uninteresting, to be unnoticed, to not stand out, to not be the target of anyone. But she has these two things that she does. She goes on runs by herself and she attends, like I think, a French class or something like that, which make her stand out in ways that draw the attention of a guy called the milkman who's like, the head of the political dissidents in the city that she lives in. And he's very violent. He's very dangerous. He starts following her around places, wants to like become involved with her. And she does not know what to do because there is no good choice. If she ignores him, she, you know, is setting herself up for violence. If she gets involved with him, she's setting herself up for violence. She just wants it to end. And so you're with her as she like navigates this really complicated situation and navigates living in a city where like a bomb could go off at any moment while she's out for her runs. And she has a boyfriend who does things like he's a mechanic and he he like becomes really interested in this one British car that that he like gets an engine in his house of and starts to take apart and it's like really fascinating and that becomes some like big political issue because it's a British car you know that kind of thing and so it's stream of consciousness and then the structure is very Virginia Woolfish and I actually picked this book for one of my book clubs and it was so polarizing people either love love loved it or could not stand it and because of the the narration because of the stream of consciousness I obviously am a person who loved it this character's mind is such a fascinating and suffocating place to be and it's not suffocating because of her it's suffocating because of her environment and it actually felt 
I mean, obviously, the current American political climate and the troubles of Ireland are not the same. But the things, the way that she thinks about, like, in such a tribal way, and the ways in which, like, what you name your child indicates what tribe you belong to, and the classes you take in college, and the media you consume, and the news channels that you watch can indicate your tribes in ways that can lead to violence in your community, that felt pretty familiar to, the, you know, the kind of things that we're dealing with now. So it was fascinating for us on a lot of levels, or fascinating for us, for me. I'm not the royal us. Like, what was that? I'm not more <laughs> Uh, it's fascinating to me on a lot of levels I got through it really really fast I read it really quickly I think because she so skillfully does the stream of consciousness that you really do you know not to make a joke about it but like flow with it and then and then it's over so that's Milkman by Anna Burns all right I picked the fifth season by N.K. Jemisin, which does come with trigger warnings for graphic harm to children and institutionalized racism. And obviously, you know, this series has been talked about a lot. But I think what we often talk about when we talk about the series is the world building, which is amazing. It's a fantasy world where certain segments of the population have the power to manipulate Earth, basically, in different ways. And they have been sort of oppressed and controlled by the powers of this civilization for a long time with sort of horrifying side effects. And this world is starting to fall apart in various ways. And I don't think we talk a lot about how amazingly, fascinatingly innovative the structure of this first book in particular is. It's three separate narratives. They're second person plural. And the ways that they like wind and twine around each other before like coming together in this really like intense click moment is just so well done. And I I do think it is polarizing. I, I feel like I see a lot, especially if you just like happen to scroll through reviews, people who hate second person narration, like they just hate it, which is interesting to me. I don't know. I don't know that there's any one style of narration that I hate. Some people feel like that about first person, too, which is just, you know, anyway, doesn't matter. Side note, side side wander about POV. And it's very polarizing. And I think that the payoff for sticking with it is so good. Uh, so even if you are a person who feels like you have particular POVs that you just don't care for, like, I would argue that watching somebody do it well is the key to busting that down. And Jemison does this structure so well, and it carries through in really interesting ways to the other books and, like, continues to unfold in sort of mind-blowing ways as the series goes along. And I just think that's an amazing feat of writing, as well as, like, the characters and the action and just everything about these books is great. I mean, there's a reason that the whole series won Hugo Awards. Like, it's just, it's just that good. So again, that's The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison. All right. Our next question is from Carol, who says, I've been in a major reading slump, and the last books that really got me going had an unexpected through line that I'd love to read more of. They were casually queer YA. By casually queer, I mean they had blatantly queer characters and romances that were important to the storyline, but the queerness wasn't a big deal and wasn't even particularly acknowledged. More specifically, I read The Fever King by Victoria Lee, We Set the Dark on Fire by Taylor K. Meha, and Every Hearted Doorway by Shannon McGuire, and Jane Unlimited by Kristen Kishore. What else should I be reading? If possible, I'm looking for wrecks that I would hopefully be able to find at my library without a week's long hold list. Okay, I picked Huntress by Melinda Lowe, um, which is quite old, <laughs> like comparatively, uh, compared to, I don't know what I'm comparing it to. You should be able to get it at your library with no issues. It came out in 2011, so there will not be like a super long hold list for this. And Huntress is set in, uh, if you've read Melinda Lowe before, it's set in the Ash universe. Like it's kind of a prequel, takes place many, many, many years before the Ash story takes place. And so in this version, in Huntress, the nature nature in the in this world is like totally out of balance. The sun is gone. Crops are failing. There are like weird animals and creatures that have started appearing. Humanity is like kind of falling apart a little bit. And maybe everybody's going to die. It's questions, question mark. So um, they cast, you know, Oracle Stones and these two 17-year-old girls, Kaidi and Tyson, are selected to go on a journey to meet the fairy queen and like try to negotiate, you know, putting nature back where it goes so people can have food and the sun can come back out again. So they go on this journey. Tayson herself is a sage and she is very magical. She wants to be a celibate sage. This is like her dream in life. 
And Kaidi is doesn't is one of her classmates and doesn't have any kind of like magical abilities or anything. Um, and they're traveling together. As they are traveling together with their guards, there are you know uh, it's kind of Lord of the Rings. There's like various and sundry obstacles. They get attacked by tr- fairy tricks and lots of weird creatures. And while this is happening, they start to rely more and more on each other. They start to fall in love. The kind of wrinkle is that. Like I said, Tayson, once she becomes a sage, is going to be celibate. And like, what's that going to do to their relationship if they're going to have one? Because she's not giving up her dream for this. And like, oh, question mark, question mark. But we have to save humanity. All these problems. Lots of angst and feelings. <laughs> it's very, very angst and feelings. But so great. And like, uh, the romance is the central kind of storyline, along with, you know, saving humanity from tricksy fairies. Um, so you will get lots and lots of really great handholds to pull you out of your reading slump with this one and ash is all the ash is the uh, the other book that i mentioned earlier that melinda lowe wrote if you have not read that it's a queer retelling of cinderella that's really good so that's huntress by melinda lowe i love that book all right i picked you're gonna laugh and be like what are you talking about jen but for real i picked hocus pocus and the all-new sequel by aw jantha which was a delight and I stand by it. (laughs) I'm like really (laughs) defensive about this pick, probably unnecessarily. (laughs) But listen, this book. Okay, so this is a novel. This is two things. First, it is a novelization of Hocus Pocus, the Disney movie. And then it is a sequel and it's all in the same volume. So if you are interested in reading like a much more fleshed out sort of like give you some character development, uh, internal monologues, etc., for example, that you didn't get in Hocus Pocus the movie, like you can read that section of the book or you can skip to the second half of the book, which involves the children of Max and Alice Dennison, Allison Dennison. Uh, Poppy is 17, and her parents, like, are the town weirdos. They believe in witches. They, like, have this family story. She's so over it. Like, she just can't stand it. She also is, like, having normal teenagery problems. Like, you know, she's got her arch nemesis at school and, like, you know, is a teenager. So over all of this nonsense. And then Halloween comes around and, oh, no, like, turns out witches are real. Like, her parents have been telling her for forever. And she has to team up with this very unlikely band of friends slash frenemies to save the day. And it is very casually queer and so much fun. It's so much fun. It's just a delight. I mean, I know we're post-Halloween here, but if you are not ready to let go of witchy vibes and you're interested in some casually queer YA, I highly recommend it. Again, that's Hocus Pocus and the all-new sequel by A.W. Jantha. All right, our next question is from Sarah, who says... Hoping you can help me find some sci-fi reads. I'm relatively new to the genre, and to be honest, I've always been slightly intimidated by it. This year, I found a few sci-fi books that I truly loved, Becky Chambers' Wayfarer series, and This Is How You Lose the Time War. I think what drew me to these particular books is that they feature all of the fun trappings typical of the genre, aliens, AI, time travel, etc., but with a slower, quieter, more thoughtful feel than most other sci-fi books I've picked up. I also loved the found family aspect and sense of optimism in the Wayfarers trilogy and the gorgeous prose and emotional depth of Time War. Any recommendations for books in a similar vein would be greatly appreciated. P.S. Please know on the page sexual violence. All right, Amanda, I'm excited. I'm excited for you to talk about your pick. (laughs) Yay. All right. I picked Hunger Makes the Wolf by Alex Wells, who I will say, like full disclosure, writes our Swords and Spaceship science fiction and fantasy newsletter at Book Riot. Uh, which is great, and you should go subscribe to it. It's bookride.com slash newsletters, and you can subscribe to whichever ones you want. But they do a great job. Okay, so this, look, I bought this book like a millennia ago, and it (laughs) sat in my iPad forever until I wanted this exact thing that you're talking about. I wanted like a fun, but also kind of chill science fiction book that was like thoughtful and thinky. Yeah, and then so then I picked it up. But it's also very action-packed and quite adventurous, but also very thoughtful and thinky. So I think it will be quite satisfying to you. So it takes place on a a planet known as, uh, not known as, it's called uh, Tanagawa. And it's owned by this multi-intergalactic, I don't even know what the word would be, big corporation called Transrift that has a monopoly on 
many planets, including this one, which is a mining world, mostly. There's also a little bit of farming, but it's mostly mining. And the planet is very dune-like. Like, it's a lot of deserts and, you know, sand. And there's a lot of uh, labor conflict happening here. You know, it's a big corporation, and these workers are very much taken advantage of. The main character's name is Hob, and she has joined the Ghost Wolves, which is like a, I mean, it's functionally a gang, (laughs) who does extrajudicial justice. (laughs) Um, they like, you know, rob stuff and rob people and steal stuff. It's a little bit Robin Hoodie. Um, and she herself is a total screw up. Before the book opens, you like learn this pretty immediately. Before the book opens, she messed up in a really big way, almost ended up getting like her whole crew killed. And so she's been kicked back down the ladder to, to you know, like kind of a grunt um, and is trying to work her way back up. And when the book opens, her and her crew have just completed this like kind of heist and she they're leaving the going back to their headquarters and in the desert they find the body of somebody who is related to the the guy who who runs her gang. And so that's where you it gets kicked off. And the the guy whose body they find, his daughter is Hob was Hobbs' best friend. She has recently tried to leave the planet and gets caught by what's called a weatherman who in this again a little bit dune like if you remember the details of dune which like who does me i guess uh, the 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 what do they call them the people who drive the ships they like get hopped up on the spice and then they can like see through space oh, and they're not they're not yeah. like super hu- they're not really humans anymore cuz they can see like wormholes to time travel weathermen in hunger makes the wolf are kind of similar to that we're like they're not quite human anymore but they're used to travel through space and in the planet they are on the planet they're used to sniff out people who have what they call gone native meaning been contaminated by the ecosystem of the planet and have started to develop um, supernatural powers and he goes off on this witch hunt it's just bananas there's heists found family it's like dune witchy western it's very very much like a western in space if dune was a western and had witches it's like so hard to describe but it's super fun and the thinky parts are very political like there's a lot of obviously like labor dispute kind of stuff that we're thinking about here like unionization (laughs) capitalism ecological stuff there's a lot of conversations about feminism there is no sexual violence on the page although there is an attempt that is thwarted so just to like put that out there that does happen and it ends kind of pretty satisfactorily to be honest yeah it's the first book is hunger makes the wolf there is a sequel that is i think just came out so that's hunger makes the wolf by alex wells all right i also love that book i mean you know motorcycle squad in the desert in space is just like a recipe for awesome my pick for this question is a pale light in the black by kb wagers which is the first in a new series and it is I do think it has a lot in common with these books that we're talking about where it's very character driven. It is sort of a different level of stakes, Um, although the stakes are high, but like they're not necessarily, you know, all out war with aliens or whatever. Like it's much more sort of close in personal stakes. And there are a bunch of characters in this. Um, The primary character, Maxine, is a member of a very powerful and influential military family. And her parents are like very emotionally manipulative and like she there are very specific expectations for what people in your in this family do um and she doesn't want to do them she wants to join the near earth orbital guard which is kind of like space coast guard it's like you know wagers has said it's inspired by the coast guard so you know imagine that but space and that's like considered very like low level and not prestigious enough for her family. And she like kind of doesn't care. Like this is her dream. She's going to do it. She's found a way to try to 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 enter the Neo G, uh, which is what it's called. And she's now she's like taking up her first post and she's trying to deal with everybody knows who her family is. And there's a lot of expectations in this other way now that she has to deal with. And she just, like, wants to be a person. Poor Max. Like, she's just trying so hard to be a person and to, like, fulfill her dreams. Like, we all want to. um, But there are always obstacles. And there's a bunch of fun elements in this. There's this, like, you know, group games, like, all of the different, like, squadrons or whatever of the Neo G come together for, like, their internal sort of Olympics, uh, I guess, is what you might compare it to. Um, So there's a lot of rivalries and like feuding, but like very good natured sometimes, sometimes less good natured. And then there is this whole other very intense plot that involves her family, but I don't want to spoil anything. 
And it's just there's there's such great found family, like the way Max has to work to gel with the rest of her team and like find friendship and maybe a little romance. It's just really lovely. I loved the relationships in this book and the world itself was fun. And there are some interesting like sciencey bits, but that's obviously not the whole focus. And so, yeah, it's just, I just really, I read this on vacation uh, back when that was the thing that we did last, <laughs> last holiday season. In the before. <laughs> yeah, in the before times. And I really enjoyed it. And I am looking forward to the next book. So again, that's A Pale Light in the Black by KB Wagers. All right. Our next question is from Angie, who says, I just finished and absolutely loved Rainbow Rowell's Carry On and am about to start Wayward Sun. I know I'm going to want to luxuriate in a world with magic and queer characters, POC representation, representation very welcome, after I finish, and the last book in the series will not be out for a while. I've read Harry Potter, which Carry On was modeled after. Are there any similar books to Carry On and Wayward Son you would recommend? Okay, I picked House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Klune, which is not set in a school, but it is set in an orphanage, <laughs> so I felt like that was close enough. And there is magic and all the queer characters and also some people of color and some beasties like magical what satan satan is in is in here uh, so <laughs> the main character's name is linus and he is like kind of a nerd like he's very quiet he's got a cat he lives alone he's 40 years old and he works for the department in charge of magical youth so his job is to kind of monitor the well-being of magical children who've been placed in government sanctioned orphanages and the reason for this is to well, ostensibly is to protect society from these magical kids and these magical kids from society who can be very kind of bigoted about it. And so he gets like called upon by upper management to have a new assignment where he's going to travel to the Marsyas Island Orphanage, which is on the Cerulean Sea, which houses six kids. And they are all of various magical background, uh, including, like I said, the Antichrist, like the son of Satan lives in this orphanage. And also my absolute favorite magical character ever, a were Pomeranian, who is a teenage boy who, when he becomes stressed out, turns into a Pomeranian, like turns into this tiny little dog. There's also like a gnome and a wyvern and all of these very cute little kids. Arthur Parnassus is the caretaker and the, you know, the man who keeps these kids. He's in charge of the orphanage. And so Linus moves in for a few days and it's his job to make sure that the orphanage is being run correctly. But he's not been given much information about what's going on in this orphanage by his bosses. And he's not been told like why he's being sent necessarily, except to, you know, check on things. It's very vague. And when he gets there, he discovers some things about the kids. Um, he discovers some things about Arthur and Arthur's relationship to upper management and you know, kind of starts to unravel why he might have been sent there. And he starts to get some feelings, capital F, for Arthur and for the kids. And so it's just the most heartwarming thing possible. Like, I don't know how else to describe it. It will put your heart on, like, you know, those little ovens that you put, like, foil dishes on to keep them warm in weddings, those things, chafing dishes. It will put your heart on a chafing dish and you will just be <laughs> eternally warmed. <laughs> Because it's like, these, these are such good dads, and like, there's some romance, and there's some social justice, and there's just like cats. It's everything that is good is in this book. I don't know how, what else to say. So that's House in the Cerulean Sea by TJ Clune. I will co-sign that very <laughs> descriptive metaphor. I went with it. I went with it. I thought of it, and I went with it. Into it. Here for it. Uh, okay. I picked for you The Kingston Cycle by C.L. Polk. The first book is Witchmark and... So, like Amanda said, the thing about the books that you were talking about is that they're, like, very, like, YA school, sometimes, like, portal magic-y kind of books. This is not that. This is an alternate sort of historical-ish fantasy. It takes place in a very, like, Edwardian England-ish world. Um, there has been a world war. Uh, there is, like, some technology, but not a ton. And it's a very interesting sort of world in that there is magic, but it is very suppressed. Like, if you are a commoner and you have magic, you are sent to an asylum because you uh, will inevitably go mad and be a danger to everyone and everything, supposedly. And if you are one of the ruling families, they don't have magic, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. They absolutely mm -hmm. do. But they, like, control it and hide it in a very specific way. 
And so that's sort of the political context for these books. And the main character, Miles, is a person who is sort of hiding like under an assumed name a little bit. He's a veteran himself. He works in a VA hospital and he's noticing that the soldiers who come back are suffering from like a possibly magically induced version of PTSD. Like they are, it's not enough that they already have like that regular kind of quote unquote shell shock, but there also seems to be something more going on here that might be magical in nature. And he has magic, which of course he has to hide. And so he starts to, he's trying to figure that out. And then there's like a poisoning and, you know, he like gets to, his magic gets discovered and he's on the run. And then there's a sexy elf guy and like lots of things happen. And book two even further delves into the like ruling families and how they got the way they are. And it's just it is so like when you say you want to luxuriate in a world, that is why I thought of this, because like when I read when I read these books, it's an ongoing series. The first two books are out Um, when I read these books, I do feel like. I am just luxuriating in this world that Polk has built. And also, the characters are so great. Like, the love stories are so wonderful. Um, The first book is a male-male pairing. The second book is a female-female pairing. Can't wait to see what happens in the third book. And there is lots of different kinds of representation. And I just... Ugh. I just I I just want to like crawl inside these books. Now not to say that there aren't dark moments. And in fact there are. I should give some trigger warnings actually um for violence against women and children and you know this like very intense depictions of PTSD. But it is just so it somehow manages to go to those dark places and still still feel hopeful and like magical and beautiful, uh, which I think is an achievement. Um, So, again, that's The Kingston Cycle by C.L. Polk. The first book is Witchmark. And now it is time for another sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? What's more, a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must-read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Bully and Tiffany D. Jackson. So, unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money. So what does she do? She cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals. But then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders. And the truth Selena has been denying can no longer be avoided. There is evil lurking in the forest that surround St. Virgil. Now to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Das. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris, is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. All right. Our next question is from Anna, who says, I just finished reading my book club's pick for this month, Carnegie's Maid by Marie Benedict. While I didn't necessarily love all aspects of it, it reminded me so much of one of my all-time favorite books, The Tea Rose by Jennifer Donnelly. Aspects of these books that I loved are the strong female main characters, lots of details of the time period slash setting, 
glimpses into what society was like at the time, and, of course, the romance. I'd love some recommendations of books with themes similar to these. I'm not sure whether I'm asking for historical fiction heavy on the romance or romance heavy on historical fiction, but I think you catch my drift. I love late 1800s and early 1900s, but I'm open to different time periods, and I prefer urban settings like NYC or London. Amanda, what did you pick? Okay, okay. Um, I picked the Loyal League series by Alyssa Cole. The book, the first book in the series is called An Extraordinary Union, and these come with a trigger warning for slavery. So I was thinking about historical fiction heavy on romance or romance heavy on historical fiction, and the Venn diagram center, I think, is this series. So that's where I landed. The first book is, I'll just talk about the first book, um, specifically An Extraordinary Union, is uh, takes place during the Civil War in Richmond. So it's like urban, but Southern urban, you know what I mean? I mean, I live here, so I think that it's quite a nice city to read about when you say you prefer urban settings, but it's Richmond in the 1800s. I don't know. So the main character's name is Elle. She's a former slave living in Massachusetts who has an eidetic memory. And so she joins the Union Army as a spy. And her assignment is to go undercover as a mute slave in the house of a Confederate officer, I think a general or something like that, a Confederate officer in Richmond. So she does that. And while she's waiting to get more details about her assignment, she eventually does. And her assignment is to team up with another um, agent who's working for Pinkerton's Secret Service, which is kind of the predecessor to the FBI. And uh, the two of them are going to get, you know, secrets out of this house. And it turns out that the um, person, the other agent that she's supposed to team up with is named Malcolm McCall, who is a Scotsman who has moved to the South and, again, is a se- working for the Secret Service undercover as a Confederate soldier. And so Elle doesn't know that when she meets him. She thinks that he's just a Confederate soldier and so has, you know, capital F, like, feelings of rage towards him, as she, you know, understandably should. And then she finds out, they, like, get into, like, a skirmish. It's, you know, they're kind of rude to each other. And then she finds out that he's her partner and she's like, ugh, fine. And so they have to, you know, team up with this common cause, except they become more and more attracted to each other as the book goes on. And uh, he, Malcolm is white, obviously, and L is not. And so that is completely like it's addressed. It is capital A addressed in the book that even if they make it through this assignment and like live, you know, to see another day, they, they can't be married if they do get together there's always going to be a weird power dynamic between the two of them and what is what is her family going to think what's his family going to think like all of that is discussed and so Elle is pretty resistant to pursuing her feelings for him Malcolm eventually wears it on he's just such a cinema he's a great character he's such a good character and is very patient and considerate of all of the concerns the valid obviously concerns that she's bringing up but there's action there's so much like espionage obviously that's what the book is about and adventure lots and lots of history Uh, they end up on like one of those what what were they called the ironclads one of which is uh here in richmond that you can go see like the canon of it's super cool so that's an extraordinary union by Alyssa cole so good Mm -hmm. i picked historical fiction heavy on the romance remember that time that alexander chi wrote a historical novel that we were obsessed with remember (laughs) we're going to talk about the queen of the night by alexander chi which still obsessed with it It takes place in the mid to late 1800s, so within your chosen time period, um, in Paris, so urban, very urban. And it follows a woman named Lilliet Byrne, who is a soprano uh, and is like the star of the Paris Opera. And she is at like a fancy party being, you know, lauded and adored when this like very sort of awkward composer approaches her because they want to, you know, write an opera and have her originate a role, which is like a really big deal for an opera singer. And it's the only thing she hasn't done. But then she starts to read what the opera is about, and it seems that somebody has uncovered details of her past and turned it into an opera, and she doesn't know how they could possibly know these things. They're things that she has, like, buried, you know, as deep as possible. Nobody should know. How can they know these things? Is somebody trolling her? Like, this awkward composer does not appear to know that it has anything to do with her personally. So, like, she starts to try to figure out, like, who 
what is going on? And you get to see her like whole life, um, childhood and then adulthood and the very winding and complicated road that has brought her to this moment. And it's just so immersive and beautifully written. And I have so many feelings about the various like affairs that Lilliet has uh, and like where she ends up. And I just, yeah. This book is not short. It's like 500 plus pages, but I think I read it in two sittings. Like I was that immersed by it. So I think I think you will get sucked in as well and really enjoy it. So again, that's The Queen of the Night by Alexander Chi. Okay, our next question is from Jenny who says, I've recently been rewatching Buffy and man, do I love that show. Do you know of any books that have a similar feel? They don't need to be about a teenager or YA. I'm more interested in a badass female character who's fighting something. She can also be a supernatural being. Unlike Buffy, it doesn't need to be exactly like the show. I just want something with a similar vibe. I would also not mind some romance in the book a la Spike and Buffy, but I don't want to be too picky, so don't worry too much about romance. Okay, you went with Spike and Buffy, not Angel and Buffy. That's interesting. That's interesting. I caught that. Uh, I don't know what to do with it, but I, I was like, hmm, 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 I see you. Okay, so I picked Angel's Blood by Nalini Singh, which is the first book in the Guild Hunter series. And in this universe, angels, uh, archangels, like exist, co- coexist with humanity. And it's, you know, modern day. Uh, and most major cities have an archangel who is overseeing what's going on in the world. And they also have vampires. And vampires are created by angels. Humans can come to the angels and say, I would like to be immortal, please. And in order to fulfill that, the angels turn them into vampires in exchange for 100 years of servitude. And Elena, uh, Elena Devereaux is the main character. She's a vampire hunter. She works for the guild. And the guild's job is to keep these vampires like in control after they leave the service of the angels who live in this world. And so she gets hired by the guild to go work for an archangel, Raphael. Not an archangel, the only one. Archangel Raphael, who is in charge of New York City. He's very, very dangerous, as most archangels are. They're not humans. They don't really care about humans. Like, they're here to run their businesses and, you know, to have their own internal politics and their own kind of, like, drama and stuff going on. So he has a, an archangel colleague who has gone on a killing spree and is killing humans uh, for no reason. And that, you know, is going to upset the balance. He's also the, the archangel who's gone rogue is also making vampires who are killing humans, which is just like unacceptable. Everything is kind of chaotic. So Raphael hires Elena to go hunt down this archangel, which is like a big deal, right? Because they're supposed to be immortal. So it's a big job. It's dangerous. She's a vampire hunter by trade, but is uh, never killed like an archangel before. And she's also like super attracted to Raphael, which is inconvenient because, again, he's a murderous archangel and is not a person. <laughs> like He's not human, even though he looks like one. He's also very bossy. Like this is one of those books where the, he- the hero is very alpha. And it's, I guess, justifiable in, in this kind of world because he could literally like turn you into fire like he is he is alpha he is dominant over human beings and he splashes that around a lot at elena and she just like is not having it like she wants the job and she wants to work for him but she's very much resistant to his attitude toward her even though he's super dangerous and could kill her at any moment so there's a lot of tension there and it's very she reminded me a lot of buffy when i first read this book um even though it might predate no it came out in 2009 so it doesn't predate buffy um, she's not a teenager or anything like that, but this, uh, that kind of like snarky banter, I admit and realize that this being in front of me could kill me whenever it felt like it, but also I'm kind of going to give it the middle finger thing that Buffy does to pretty much everyone throughout that whole show is very much what Elena is doing here. She's a very fully realized character, which I love in paranormal, uh, paranormal romance or urban fantasy. She has a, a really great backstory that explains a lot about the way that she behaves. Um, obviously, there's a lot of action. It is pretty violent, I will say that, but the romance is very satisfying. So that's Angel's Blood by Nalini Singh. Opinion moment Ooh. about Buffy. Mm. Angel is kind of a wet blanket, in my yeah. opinion. I agree. Angel is a Mary Sue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, enough about that. So <laughs> I picked, that could be like a whole separate show. <laughs> I picked The Space Between Worlds by Micaiah Johnson, which just came out this year and which I tore through, let me just tell you. Uh, and I think... I think you're going to really dig it. It does come with trigger warnings for domestic violence, harm to women and children, and addiction. It goes to some pretty dark places, not unlike Buffy. Mm. And this is this is so interesting. This is more sci-fi than fantasy. This is a time travel book. And in this 
sort of universe, uh, which is very similar to ours. It's like a future that is, you know, sort of could could happen. Um, they've discovered time travel. It's there's a multiverse, you know, and you can move between the different versions of, you know, what could have been our reality. The catch is that you can only go to places like you personally can only go to places where there is not another version of you alive. And they've like figured out how to figure that out. So you can get hired to be a time traveler if like in particular, if there just aren't that many of you in the multiverse, which tends to mean people from poor or marginalized communities who face a lot of violence in their past or their day to day, because, you know, that increases the odds that you didn't make it to adulthood which is what the time travel company is looking for. So Kara, the main character, who is like the prickliest, like kind of a jerk, love her. And like she's got good reasons to kind of be a jerk. Kara grew up very poor in this very violent community. A lot of versions her, of her did not make it to adulthood. So she is like a, you know, highly prized time traveler um, sent around by this company. She doesn't understand how it works. She doesn't know any of the science. Like she just gets sent to these other places to monitor things, to pick up data. Um, it's all very like routine and humdrum. Although the process of time travel itself is really intense and kind of mystical in a really interesting way that I think you will appreciate. I loved it. So Kara, Kara has a lot of secrets. And she is also like super into her sort of dispatcher, Dell, who is sort of like an ice princess come from a very privileged background. And they have like a very sort of adversarial relationship. Mm. And Kara goes on this one mission and it everything goes extremely sideways. She starts to find out that like Things that she has been told are true are not true. She also has to reckon with, like, sort of what has happened to other versions of her in other timelines. And there's a super toxic, violent relationship in her past that sort of influences a lot of where this goes. And the way that Kara has to, like, deal with all of, like, reconciling all of these different things is so ooh, gives me so many feelings and I think has a lot of similar feelingsiness to some of where the Buffy show went and like I'm not going to say specifics but like you'll see it when you get there it's just really intense and it's really really good and the ending was so satisfying oh my gosh so satisfying uh, I just loved the heck out of this book uh, although again goes dark places uh, so that's the space between worlds by Micaiah Johnson all right and our last question is from Chell who says I've been looking for a good dystopian book lately but can't seem to find any I've read scythe the Hunger Games and a couple more series of dystopian novels and I finally hit a wall any recommendations Amanda I've been talking for six thousand years <laughs> I picked moon of the crusted snow by Wapgashig rice I went I picked this because I wanted to go in a bit of a different direction you seem to have read a lot of the more futuristic sci-fi -y kind of dystopian books so I wanted to to pick one that was a little bit more grounded in like contemporary reality I guess almost so the book takes place in a really small and isolated Anishinaabe community uh, far up north you're not really given like specifics of location or anything like that, but it's way up north very cold you know snow and when the book opens this already isolated community is starting to get hints that like something weird is going on out in the greater wider world specifically like farther down south like their phones aren't working super well. Some of their cell phones seem to be malfunctioning. They're not getting like the deliveries to their grocery store on time that they usually do. Um, and some kids who have left their community to go to college in a southern town return with stories about like grids failing and them not being allowed to leave their dorm rooms, except then the food stops being delivered. So they had to like go and steal a snowmobile to come home and just stuff something's like weird and, and going on and i will say that you are not given a lot of information about what is happening out in the world other than like vague societal collapse seems to be occurring so in this community the leadership has to figure out what to do they start to run out of food things are getting really tense about what direction they're supposed to go in winter obviously is like calm so people are freezing and out of the, you know, chaos of whatever is happening out in the world comes a group of white people who are like, you know, I guess refugees, they're fleeing um, the, the unrest of kind of the southern areas of their country. And they arrive in the community 
ostensibly, you know, coming in peace to asking for food and asking for help and shelter through the winter. And it turns out that they have kind of more nefarious, uh, maybe not at first, but definitely as the book continues, have nefarious motives for why they have shown up in this indigenous community when everything else around the world is falling apart. So the dystopia here is both wide and local, like obviously the civilization as Western civilization, as we know, it has something has happened to it. Um, but in this smaller community that has its own council and its kind of own way of doing things, the pressure of all of that stuff that's happening out in the world shows up on their doorstep kind of literally, and then they have to figure out what to do with it. And are they going to become, you know, a dystopic community themselves? So it it's very tense and claustrophobic, which I think I've said more than once on this episode, but whatever, it's very claustrophobic. Especially since in that way that like in Bird Box, you can't see the monster, which makes it even more frightening. The fact that you don't actually know what's going on in the world in this book makes it almost more weird because they don't seem to necessarily care, which is almost kind of the point. Like in this indigenous community, white people's civilization collapsing is like, well, there they go again. You know, like we're going to survive yet another version of this, which is just so interesting. And, and I don't know, it was very moving and affecting to me. And at the same time as being like very fast paced in the really engaging dystopia in and of itself. So that's Moon of the Crusted Snow by Wabga Shigrath. Love that book. <laughs> All right. Uh, I picked Archivist Wasp by Nicole Corner Stace because I think it's a very underappreciated YA dystopia. Uh, it's, it's interesting. It's both fantasy and sci-fi. And the main character, Wasp of the title, <laughs> has to hunt ghosts. This is like a thing that happens. They're in a post-technological collapse world that has like, they're like super, like she hunts ghosts, which is fairy fantasy, but like she's surrounded by the remains of technological society. So it's an, it, it is, it's a really interesting, very fluid moves back and forth between these like supernatural elements and these technological ones. And so, yes, Wasp is a ghost hunter. She is, you know, she has this title of the archivist, but she is part of this, like, terrible system that pits children against each other. It's very abusive. There's this, like, priest dude who is in charge of it all and, you know, withholds food and, you know, makes literally makes them kill each other for the role of archivist. Uh, it's not great, but Wasp is like, well this is how I'm surviving. Like, this is what I do. And she fights back in ways that she can, but ultimately, like, she doesn't have that many choices. And she has been trying to figure out a way out and ends up making a deal with the ghost of a super soldier to, like, go into the underworld <gasps> on this mission that he wants to do. And in exchange, he's going to, like, give her information that is going to help her with her struggle to escape from this terrible system that she's a part of. And she is just so, she's like grim plucky is what I want to say. Like, it's so great. And the, like, how I just, it's like a dystopian novel that has a trip to the underworld. Like, it's very like, it's almost like, you know, Homeric in, yeah. in certain ways, which I just love. It's so, it's so interesting. Like, all of the different kinds of, you know, mythologies and supernaturalisms and technological things that Nicole Corner Stace is blending here just delight me. And Wasp is a great main character. And it's such a fascinating world. And uh, there's actually a sequel, which I just realized I never ever read, which shame on me. So I am excited to dig into that. And I think you will definitely enjoy it since this is this is also your jam. Uh, so again, that's Archivist Wasp by Nicole Corner Stace. And that is our show. Woohoo! Thank you all for listening. Thanks to our audio editor, Jen Zink, who makes us presentable for mm -hmm. the air. Uh, <laughs> if you are so inclined, you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, which we super duper appreciate. Thank you so much for your notes uh, and feedback on there. It is always nice to see, and it does help other folks to find the show. Thanks to our sponsors for making this show possible. And in between shows, if you are so inclined, you can find us on social media. Amanda, where are you? I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. I will not lie. I spent five minutes this morning looking at your puppy highlights, uh, which <laughs> do recommend. Thank you for indulging me. <laughs> <laughs> no, Petunia is the best thing that happened to my feed in a while. Aww. And if you, I don't have a puppy, but you can still find me on social media. I'm also mostly on Instagram these days at I am Jen IRL. That's I-A-M-J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And we will talk to you next time. 